the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who did instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same Spirit that we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So two weeks ago, we covered the Ten Commandments as a whole, and tonight we will cover the First Commandment. And uh, as I prepared this First Commandment, I found myself uh, surprised at how much material there is under just this one commandment. Of course, all of the commandments are really extensions of this first commandment. But even without considering all of the other commandments and how they relate, this one alone has a great deal. So let's get started. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth below or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. The first thing to note about the first commandment is that unlike all the rest of the commandments, it is immediately preceded by a description of God's own identity. God makes himself known before he gives his commandment. And the way that he makes himself known is to recall his all-powerful love as he has manifested himself in history. And so justly, he demands our response to his greatness, to his goodness, and to his love. There is an intimate link between God's identity and the way we are supposed to respond to him. This should be unsurprising. Important in understanding this first commandment is what we mean when we say God. By the word God, by the name God, we mean to refer to the eternal being, the only uncreated being, constant, unchangeable, faithful, just, perfect, and loving. In some sense, to say, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no gods before me, is a tautology. If God is all those things that I just listed, then of course we cannot believe or or value anything else ahead of him. Of course. It follows from the definition. This is perhaps why in enumerating the commandments, he says at the end of each one, I am the Lord. It's as if to renew the demand that he places on us with this first commandment. The demand that we respond to him as he is. The foundational 
response that we offer to God for being God is the theological virtues, which, by the way, are themselves his gift. Just as he gives us knowledge of himself through revelation, he also interiorly gives us the grace to respond through the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. The first obligation imposed on us by God's identity itself is faith. We are obliged to believe in him. Now, all of us are here because we do believe in him, right? We want to know him better. We want to understand him more. So let's go further. What else does this first commandment demand of us in terms of faith? It demands us to nourish our faith, to deepen our understanding, and to protect it. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I like to watch movies. And there are some movies, some TV series, that are so disheartening, so discouraging, that present such a dark, bleak picture of the human race that I'm tempted, not in any serious sort of way, but in the sense that I'm emotionally distracted, I'm tempted to kind of doubt, to turn away, to not pay attention to God or his goodness. If this were to have a continuing effect on me of that kind, to, do, to continue doing it would be a sin on my part. I would be failing to protect my faith. There are several specific sins against the virtue of faith that the Catechism enumerates. The first is voluntary doubt willfully choosing to disregard or hold as untrue what God has revealed or what the church proposes to believe, for belief. To willfully disbelieve that Jesus is God, for example, is actually a sin, at least for a Christian, for one baptized into the faith. I am not of the opinion that all loss of faith is due to other kinds of moral sin. But there is some real truth in saying that all loss of faith is due to sin, if only due to pride, which does not accept humbly what God has revealed of himself. The second kind of sin against faith is involuntary doubt. Now you should immediately ask, how can something that is involuntary, meaning not of the will, be a sin at all? Good question. Involuntary doubt is when we hesitate to believe, when we find difficulty in overcoming obstacles to believe. When we, for example, probably the most common kind of involuntary doubt would be coming up against the problem of evil. How can a good God allow children to suffer? 
especially when that suffering is not directly caused by someone else's sin, like childhood cancer, for example. How could a good God allow that? We should find that difficult. But we do not need to let that stop us from believing. We can humbly acknowledge that the mystery of evil is just that, a mystery. It is beyond our comprehension because we don't really solve it by denying that God exists. Deliberately cultivating this kind of involuntary doubt, this kind of difficulty with, with overcoming objections to the faith or, or difficulty in understanding the mysteries of the faith, butting up against that is not a sin. But willfully allowing yourself to butt up against it, knowing that that's going to happen, putting yourself in that circumstance again and again and again, that is a sin. Because it's not protecting your faith. It's not guarding it. Then the more serious sins, the the most grave sins against the virtue of faith are heresy, apostasy, and schism. Heresy, and I'm just going to read these definitions from the Code of Canon Law because they're technical. Heresy is the obstinate post-baptismal denial of some truth which must be believed with divine and Catholic faith, or it is likewise an obstinate doubt concerning the same. Let me explain. Heresy is post-baptismal. So someone who's never been baptized cannot be a heretic. In fact, more technically speaking, someone who has never been a member of the Catholic Church cannot be a heretic, even if they've been baptized. So someone who was baptized into a Protestant community cannot be a heretic, even if what they believe is not consistent with what the Catholic Church teaches. Nor can someone who's baptized into the Orthodox faith be a heretic. It's a technical definition. It's not merely someone who holds something contrary to the teaching of the church. Okay? Second, they have to obstinately hold something to be true. So, for example, an example of something that is not heresy. When I was in the seminary, I thought I knew a lot. And actually, I probably did. When I first entered, I probably knew more than most of my peers. But I was of the opinion that Christ only had one will. This is a heresy. It's called monothelitism. It was condemned, I want to say, in the 6th century, 5th or 6th century. All Christians today adhere to the truth that Christ had two wills a human will and a divine will, one corresponding to each of his two natures. I did not hold to this error obstinately. When I was corrected by my professor and classmates, I accepted the correction. I was not a heretic. (laughs) I believed something that is material heresy, but I was not a formal heretic. So it has to be someone who is a member of the Catholic faith who obstinately holds something 
contrary to what the church has defined to be revealed by God. The second and most grave sin against the virtue of faith is apostasy, which is a total repudiation of the Christian faith, a denial that Jesus is God, a denial that the scriptures are revealed by God, a denial that God is Trinitarian. If you deny any of those things, you've denied all of Christianity. And then the final schism is refusal of submission to the Roman pontiff or of communion with members of the church subject subject to him. Again, this one pertains to those who are members of the Catholic faith. To break off from union with the Pope is to enter into schism. Now, we speak about churches as being in schism, and there is some truth to that, but we would not say that each of their members are, or ecclesial communities, there's technically only one true church, but ecclesial communities not fully in union with Rome, we speak of those communities as in schism, it would not quite be right to say that each of their members have committed the sin of schism. You see the distinction? The second virtue which God demands of us in his first commandment is the virtue of hope. These two are often conflated because they are closely related. Faith and hope. The way I like to distinguish them, the very simple way I like to distinguish them, is faith is the adherence to, the acceptance of what Christ has already done, what God has already done in the world, as true. Faith looks back at what God has done and and asserts, that's true, God really did that. Hope looks forward to what God has promised, both to us as individual Christians, to the church as a whole, and to us at the end of time, both now and at the end of time. Hope anticipates that God will fulfill all that he has promised, both in giving us the grace to live the theological virtues and in giving us ultimately the beatific vision, eternal life eternal happiness in heaven. So hope is directed backwards to assert as truly what God has done. I'm sorry, faith. Faith is directed backwards to assert that God has done what he, really, what he said he did. And he is who he says he is. Hope looks forward to what he has promised he will do. The sins against hope essentially fall into two categories, despair and presumption. By despair, we deny something that God has promised, whether it be that we will go to heaven, that we will be helped by God, this is really a common one, that we will be forgiven for our sins, this was the principal sin of Martin Luther, who believed that he could not be forgiven for his sins. This is why he 
and there, there is good record of this, that he went to confession sometimes multiple times a day. Not to confess new grave sins, but to confess sins that he had already confessed. He did not really believe that God could or would forgive him. Despair denies God's goodness. And it is an expression of a lack of trust in his love for us individually. The other principal sin against hope is presumption. And presumption takes two forms. Either it expresses an utter reliance on ourselves to become holy, that we can do it on our own, we can be the virtuous man, the ubermensch, by ourselves, by our own power. Or it presumes upon God's power and mercy even without conversion. The third theological virtue required by the first commandment is charity. Love seeks love. God created us out of love. He gave us the law out of, us, out of love. He redeemed us out of love. And so what he is clearly seeking is our love in return. This is why Christ summarizes the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Sins against charity are manifold, but the Catechism lists five principal sins against charity. Indifference, which simply doesn't pay attention to God's love, which is as if numb to the goodness of God. Ingratitude, which might acknowledge the goodness of God, but never expresses thanksgiving, never gives him the credit for how good he is. Lukewarmness might acknowledge the goodness of God and sometimes even thank him for it, but never makes the effort to respond, to, to live in accord with his love. I think personally, of all the sins against charity, this is the one I struggle with the most. Because lukewarmness is, we, we find lukewarmness in ourselves when we have an inspiration, I could go do this good thing, but I don't feel like it. That's lukewarmness. I don't need to do it, therefore I won't. I won't go to hell if I don't do it. Therefore, I'll put it off till tomorrow. No one will die. No one will, you know, it, it's, it's bargaining with God. Achadia, or sloth, sloth, goes even beyond in, indifference and lukewarmness, and that it is actually sorrowful about the joy of the spiritual life. It actually begins to be despondent 
about the great joy that is only to be found in God. Usually this arises when one is profoundly attached to things of this world. If you, if you find in yourself a very, very strong revulsion toward any kind of penance or self-denial, you're probably struggling with achadia, somewhat at least. Because we know the church has taught since the very beginning acts of self-denial deepen our union with Christ. And we can find, we do find, real joy in denying ourselves, especially when that self-denial is directed toward love and service of another human being. The fifth sin against God's love that the Catechism names is hatred of God, which derives from pride. It might even acknowledge the goodness of God. It might even be able to, one who hates God might even be able to profess the Nicene Creed. Satan certainly can profess the Nicene Creed. And yet he despises God out of pride. He says that his will is more good than God's will. He denies the goodness of God's will, in fact. It interprets all God's actions principally in terms of commandments and punishments, when really we should interpret the commandments as expressions of God's love. So all that is really simply our response to God's revelation that he is God. The next part of the commandment is that or dictates that him alone shall you serve. We, our service should be entirely directed toward God. In this section, the catechism describes the virtue of religion, which is very easy to forget it is very easy to forget that religion is a virtue, a habit, a discipline that we cultivate. And it is the habit of giving to God his due. It's a subcategory of justice. Justice is giving to each his due. Giving God his due is religion. The first act of religion is adoration. To acknowledge that God is God, that he is the source of everything, that he is good, that every goodness in our lives comes from him, that he is loving. Adoration also arises from our nothingness, our littleness. We can go in both of those directions. We do fruitfully go in both of those directions in prayer. When we consider the greatness of creation, one of my favorite ways is to just look at the stars. I had many opportunities to do so in the Navy. It's unfathomable 
to think how great the material world is that God has created. Out of nothing. Effortlessly. The other way that we can move our hearts to adoration is to consider our littleness. To consider how we know nothing of the vast majority of the created world. It always encourages me to think we actually know less about the ocean than we do about outer space. (laughs) We know so little. We are so little. We have so little power. It's also helpful to consider in this respect we cannot control whether we live or die for another day. We can do things that make it easier for us to live or harder But ultimately, it's not up to us. The two movements of adoration are to praise and exalt God and to humble ourselves. The second movement of religion, the second act of religion, is prayer. Directly addressing God, heart to heart. The third is sacrifice. To offer something that we value, to immolate it, to to destroy it, to consume it, in order to, to give it entirely to God, so that we let go of it, so as to be more fully attached to him. In order for this act, for any act of sacrifice, to be an actual act of the virtue of religion, it has to be principally interior. And the perfect sacrifice, of course, is the crucifixion, when Christ offered himself perfectly out of love for God the Father. Another manifestation of the virtue of religion that everyone here has participated in, though you may not really think about it, or may not have thought about it before, is the practice of promises and vows. The sacraments of baptism, confirmation, matrimony, and holy orders all include promises or vows. principally made to God. A pledge of some possible good that we offer to God. It is also possible to make private vows and promises. To offer those to God privately. I strongly discourage anyone from undertaking a vow or promise without the supervision of a priest. The reason for this is that it is very easy to offer God a promise that is ill-formed, that is misguided. It's very easy to make a promise a kind of bargaining chip with God. God, if you do this, I'll do that. It's, it becomes, in that sense, a form of control. 
not a trust in God's providence, but wresting control from God, negotiating with him rather than receiving everything from him as a loving gift. Exorcists have told me that the devil often sees such ill-conceived promises and vows as a gateway into the life of someone who makes one. If you have made an ill-conceived vow or promise, come talk to me. Maybe not tonight, but soon. Ideally in the confessional. And I will release you from it. You can still live out the virtuous part of it, but let go of the part that seeks to control. The church, from very early on, from the first two centuries, has elevated, has honored especially vows made toward the fulfillment of the evangelical councils, poverty, chastity, and obedience. As I've already said, the church can, in certain cases and for just cause, dispense someone who has made promises or vows. To dispense from public vows is always a sad thing. Even if it is the best thing to do in a particular case, it is always sad. To dispense from private vows made poorly (laughs) is a liberating thing. Thus far, I've talked about the virtue of religion as a personal virtue. But religion is also a public virtue. The church teaches that all men are bound to seek the truth, especially in what concerns God and his church, and to embrace it and to hold on to it as they come to know it. So, likewise, are societies obliged. Societies, not only individuals, but societies have a moral duty toward the truth, in particular toward the true religion and the one church. This duty derives from the dignity of the human person. We are made in the image and likeness of God. We are made for God not only as individuals, but as an entire race. This duty, according to the Catechism, does not contradict a sincere respect for different religions, which frequently reflect a ray of that truth which enlightens all men. Nor does it dispense or contradict the requirement of charity, which urges Christians to treat with love, prudence, and patience those who are in error or ignorance with regard to the faith. 
the best, I don't have a whiteboard here. This is the first time I've wanted it in three years. <laughs> but the best way I've had, I, I've seen this explained is with a target, a bullseye. My dad came up with this. He likes to call it the truth target. And on the outermost rings are pagan religions, like the ancient religions that worshipped trees and the sun and the moon. There is truth there in that there is some grandeur, some goodness of God revealed in the trees, in the sun and the moon. And there is something beyond us deserving of worship. There is truth even in paganism, even in polytheism. It's very little truth, but it's there. And then inside that would be monotheism. Perhaps Islam, or some, as I understand it, some forms of Buddhism. They have a, a natural belief in, in one God. But they do not have any of the revealed truth which God has given to us. They know about God as we can know by reason. They know more than polytheistic paganism knows. But still, they are missing most of the truth about God and about ourselves. And then inside that would be Judaism, which really does have revealed truth. They know about the oneness of God. They know of the goodness of God. They know of creation. They know of the promises and the law. They have a great deal of truth. But they're still missing the most important of God's self, element of God's self-revelation, which is Christ. So then inside that would be all of Christianity. On the, outer, on the outside, if we divide Christianity into three parts, on the outside we, would, outside we would put Protestantism, which believes much of what we believe, a great deal of what we believe. But most Protestants do not believe all that we believe about the church. Certainly not structurally. They do not believe all that we believe about the priesthood or most of the sacraments. Most Protestants do not believe what we believe about the Eucharist. That it's not merely a symbol, but really the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. So they have a great deal of truth, more than anyone I've, any religion I've named before, but less than the Orthodox religion, which believes everything we believe about the church except what we believe about the Pope, which, we, which believes everything we believe about the sacraments. The overlap in belief between Orthodox and Catholics is like 99%. It's... Most, mostly, we agree on everything. There are a few points that we disagree on, and they are substantive, but they're very small. And then at the center, the bullseye of this truth target would be Catholicism, the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith. It is important for us to understand that 
all religions do have some truth. There's no religion that could not be placed somewhere on that truth target. Because all religions are, at least in their best instances, seeking to know God. Seeking to know the one who transcends us. The one who is our source and our hope. So then to return to the idea of societies having an obligation toward the virtue of religion. Allow me to preface what I'm about to say on this point by pointing out that this is one of the most unsettled questions of theology in the church today. Prior to the Second Vatican Council, the church was basically unanimous in asserting something that might be summarized as error has no rights. The Second Vatican Council, seeing, tracking real development that occurred in the way that that was articulated, and part of that articulation was tied to monarchy, because religion and the state were very closely united and worked in service of one another in, in Catholic um, monarchies. There were popes who, not dogmatically, but there were popes who condemned democracy outright because it didn't have this same relationship with the church. The Second Vatican Council following real development that had already been progressing in the way that the popes and bishops taught about the question of relationship between church and state, acknowledged what we might call a right to freedom of religion. How exactly this connects with the church's assertion that everyone has an obligation to seek the one true religion is the messy part. It's still being hashed out by theologians and debated hotly. Of course, what I want to emphasize is this debate centers on the interpretation of the Second Vatican Council. It is not a rejection of the Second Vatican Council, but an interpretation of it. I want to be very clear about that because one who rejects the Second Vatican Council as untrue or just meaningless, it looks to me really close to committing the sin of schism that I've already defined. But even acknowledging the Council as totally authentic, there's still a lot of room for debate on this question. Because we don't want to say that atheism or Satanism has an exactly equal footing to Catholicism. We actually cannot say that. Because the, the one is true and the others are false. And nearly entirely false. But what we also don't want to say, we, we don't want to deny what the Catechism says. Nobody may be forced to act against his convictions. 
I don't think that's as much a moral statement as just a statement of objective fact. We're talking about matters of faith. We're talking about matters of interior belief. How could anyone compel belief of any kind? You might compel outward behaviors, but you cannot, no one is in a position to compel a person's heart. Ever. And we don't want to deny that as a church. Any questions there? I'm trying not to be too precise because this is a, a murky question. Mm-hmm. So the passage that Rebecca is quoting, the line I just read, nobody may be forced to act against his convictions, goes on, nor is anyone to be restrained from acting in accordance with his conscience in religious matters, in private or in public, alone or in association with others within due limits. That's part of the debate. What do those due limits mean? Some theologians would argue that principally what that means is one cannot be prohibited from practicing Catholicism. Others would take different positions. It's, that's part of the debate. So it's hard to pin that down. The next part, are you? The next part of the first commandment is You shall have no other gods before me. Judeo Christianity is the first and fundamental monotheistic religion in history. Some have described the entire Old Testament as an anti-pagan polemic, an argument against polytheism. And in fact, there are passages within the Old Testament where it's very clear that that's what's going on. They're, they're arguing against polytheism from the presupposition of polytheism. That's why within the Old Testament you see a reference to gods again and again and again. God's plural. This isn't because the Old Testament is acknowledging the truth that there are many gods, but because the first hearers of the Old Testament believed that there were many gods. So there are numerous sins that the Catechism lists that are contrary to monotheism. The first, superstition. Finding religious feeling and practice and connecting it to magic or not purely natural practices. Superstition can also be connected to Catholic practices. Allow me to give an example. To think 
that one will go to heaven simply because a priest has anointed you, regardless of the interior disposition of your heart. To think that, well, I received anointing of the sick and I received the apostolic pardon, therefore I'm going to go straight to heaven. No. (laughs) The sacraments are not magic. They are grace. They are a vehicle of grace. And grace always works in concert with our will. There are actually several kinds of of common superstition that I've seen many Catholics practice. How many of you have ever done this? That's superstition. It actually derives from paganism. Because there were tree gods in pagan religions. And to knock on wood was actually a religious practice of tree worshippers who would have idols of the tree god, and they would knock on it in order to wake up the god so that the god would hear what they were asking for. So if you are in that habit, stop it. Don't knock on wood. Even in jest, jest, because it might confuse others. (laughs) Or saying jinx. Jinx is also pagan. Jinx is the name of a pagan god, the trickster god. And it was believed by pagans that if two people said the same thing at exactly the same time, the trickster god would trip them up and get them in trouble. So they would say his name to keep him away. So don't do that either. (laughs) I wouldn't say that you're committing a mortal sin if you do either of those things. But just don't do it. Another sin contrary to monotheism is idolatry. Now, of course, idolatry refers to literally making gods of things that are not God. But it also is referred to by Christ himself in reference to all, all kinds of ways of divinizing things that are not God, of, of elevating them far beyond what they are. Honor, power, pleasure, race, ancestors. One that's really common today, the state and money. The catechism then makes a really important point. And that is that humanity will only ever find unity in true worship of the one true God. Idolatry is always divisive. Always. This is why in every pagan religion, war between tribes, between clans, is basically ubiquitous. Not just all over the place, but pretty much all the time. we will only find unity with one another in worship of the one true God. A third kind of sin against the monotheism demanded by the first commandment is divination and magic. Divination is trying to know the future or hidden knowledge 
in any form, whether it be explicit recourse to Satan or demons, conjuring up the dead, consulting horoscopes, astrology, palm reading, interpretation of omens, casting of lots. An important point there. The apostles cast lots in order to choose the the replacement for Judas. But very quickly they condemned doing so. Very quickly. How do we make sense of that? Well, the first thing to remember is that the apostles did not have the fullness of the faith immediately. There were disputes among them. Peter and Paul, for example, argued about whether or not anyone to be baptized Christian had an obligation to be circumcised. So we should not be scandalized at this fact, but rather should receive what the church has has unveiled in the unfolding of tradition. Ultimately, divination and magic likewise manifests a desire for power. Power over history, over time, and over other human beings. But that power, the kind of power that is sought by divination, belongs to God alone. It is not for us to know the day or the hour. It is not for us to know the future. It is rather for us to trust our Father who loves us and providentially guides our lives. Perhaps you've heard some who, well, before I get to that point, let me just make the broader point. Magic seeks to do the same thing, only instead of seeking knowledge, it seeks power directly. It seeks power that is not natural to human beings. Actively imitating or simulating magic directly is gravely evil. Wearing charms or or, uh, spiritism, gravely evil, directly contrary to belief in the one God and in his providential love for us and in his manifestation of himself through revelation. This might be an appropriate time to bring up the children's fiction series, Harry Potter. I've read all of them twice. I've seen all of the movies. And I would discourage anyone from ever doing so. Not principally because of the magic. Because they're fantasy. They're not real. They're explicitly not real. They're not trying to actually perform magic. No, they're just telling a story, a fantastic story. And within a fantasy, you can simulate all kinds of things that in reality are evil. 
so long as it is only a simulation and not the real thing. But I would discourage anyone from reading or watching Harry Potter more because of their moral character. There's not a single character in those books who does not do evil that good might come of it. Arguably, even the most heroic character, Dumbledore, tells Snape to kill him, to murder him, in order that good might come of it. And I have many more arguments, but that's the biggest one. The moral character of those books is evil. Books that contain magic or reference to magic are not, for that reason alone, evil. Because they're fantastic. They're not meant to be set in reality. But, insofar as they encourage simulating magic or participating in magic, that would be really dangerous. And so it might be the case that children should not read those books, even if you're not swayed by the argument about their morality. A fourth sin against monotheism is irreligion. Three forms of irreligion. Sacrilege, which profanes sacred things. Clearly the most heinous sacrilege would be sacrilege directly against the Blessed Sacrament. This is why such a sin carries with it an automatic excommunication. Now in order to commit that sin, you have to know that you're actually desecrating the Blessed Sacrament. You can't be excommunicated by accident. But sacrilege does not only apply to the Blessed Sacrament, but to anything consecrated to God, even to persons created or consecrated to God. If you were to hit me, you'd be committing a sacrilege. If you were doing it for the sake of doing harm, if you punch me on the shoulder out of friendship, no sin. <laughs> but actually, there's a case to be made that doing so to any baptized person is a sacrilege because all of you are consecrated to God. The second form of irreligion is simony or simony usually pronounced simony, the buying or selling of spiritual things. This is why it's absolutely forbidden to buy and sell relics or blessed objects. Blessings are pure gift. To sell or buy them would be to destroy their their free nature. And it would be to claim as claim ownership of something that is entirely God's and that is his free gift. The third form of irreligion that is rampant today is atheism. 
There are multiple forms of atheism. One might teach a whole course on atheism and responding to atheism. I won't attempt to do that tonight, but a few forms of atheism that are rampant today are practical materialism. A kind of atheistic humanism which considers us to be an end to ourselves as if we are the mo- we human beings are the most important part of history or of the whole universe no we are admittedly greater than any other part of the created universe but we are subject to god another form of contemporary atheism looks for the liberation of man through economic and social liberation If you want to know more about this particular condemnation of Marxism, read basically anything by Fulton Sheen. He goes on and on about it. But Marxism is a problem because it is atheistic, because it seeks resolution to the material problems of our lives and the moral problems of our lives through purely material means with no reference to God. But, but we know that only God can solve our problems because our problems are ultimately rooted in sin. We as believers need to be careful that our behavior does not implicitly endorse atheism. That we do not live as if there were no God. Because to do so hides God. A fifth form of irreligion is agnosticism. The Catechism explicitly says that more often than not, agnosticism is essentially atheism. But agnosticism either says that there is a God, but we can't know anything about him, or makes no judgment about God because it claims that we cannot prove or even affirm or deny anything about him because he's so utterly transcendent as to be utterly ineffable. Ultimately, it generally is a, is a particularly bad form of indifferentism. It generally, it, it generally fails to take seriously the most fundamental questions of our, of our lives. Why do we exist? How is it that we exist? Agnosticism has to punt on those questions. It has to just essentially set them aside. I don't know. The last part of the first commandment is you shall not make for yourself a graven image. In describing the difference between Catholic and Protestant numbering of the Ten Commandments, I addressed this somewhat last week, or two weeks ago, rather. But just to reiterate what the Catechism says on this point, God is absolutely transcendent. This is true. He has revealed this to us. Nothing we could ever make out of material things, could accurately depict him. 
That's true. But God himself actually ordered the making of images that point toward him by pointing out his work in the world. Think of the bronze serpent, the Ark of the Covenant itself, and the cherubim mounted atop it. The church in the seventh ecumenical of uh, the ecumenical council, which happened at Nicaea, condemned the heresy of iconoclasm, which asserted that you could not make any images of any kind. Because what we believe is that veneration of an image is not does not terminate in the image itself, but because all images are meant all, all Christian images are meant to be symbolic, actually terminates in the person who is being depicted. So these images of the angel Gabriel and Mary and Mary and Elizabeth do not our veneration of these images is not ordered to the images, they're just paintings, painted canvas, but is rather directed toward Mary herself and Elizabeth herself, and the angel Gabriel herself. This is not Jesus on the cross. It's wood painted to look like a man. Probably doesn't even look like the man Jesus actually looked like. But we all know that what we mean to be depicting is an image of him. And so our attention when we venerate this cross is not given to the cross itself, but to Jesus who is symbolically portrayed. And so it would be deeply erroneous to say that we adore any image. Even when on Good Friday we chant, Behold the wood of the cross on which hung the salvation of the world. Come, let us adore. We're not actually adoring the cross. We're adoring Christ, who died on the cross, who sanctified the cross, by venerating the symbol of what he has done for us. That is how the Catechism concludes its discussion of the First Commandment. Any questions? Great. Well, then I will see you all, hopefully before this, but at least in two weeks.